0: so it's season two episode four four cuatro of the Arbitration Station. I'm Jovo Dorke kulboy And I'm Brian Kotick. And we're in Cambridge, both of us. Classy, fantastic. Your first time in Cambridge. First time. As soon as we uh, push the stop button on this recording, we'll go out to various pubs and I will tell you about the 31 colleges and their history and the various pubs we have in Cambridge.
1: <laughs> no!
0: I'm very excited. I wish I had horn glasses to go along with the theme. Yeah, you have perfect eyesight. I got laser surgery. That's right. That's good. I, you probably know this, but but my supervisor, who also used to be your boss, once told me that you should never trust a lawyer who doesn't wear glasses, because <laughs> that means they read too little and they're not serious. <laughs> I don't know where you fit in, in in that scheme, because you you used to have worse eyesight. Than I you should need. be a media lawyer. It's like I had bad eyesight, but it's still. You should just move back to California. I think there you would fit right. in nicely. Just too vain to have glasses all the time. Makes you look smart, though. (laughs) And on that note, on this week's arbitration station, we're talking to a smart guy from Moscow named Roman Sikov. That's the first segment, the the next step on our uh, journey around the world to different places of arbitrations. He's based in Moscow. And he, uh, similar to Anna Maria Taminen that we spoke to about, about Helsinki, Roman uh, speaks Swedish, um, by the way, which we won't uh, use in, in, for the interview, but he is, he is a practitioner based out of Moscow. He acts as both counsel and arbitrator, and he, we are talking to him primarily, I guess, in his capacity as secretary general of the Russian Arbitration Association.
1: He touches it all.
0: Yeah, Similar to Anna Maria Tamanen, we've, we've been lucky with the people so far that we've talked to. You've done a good job recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going for.
1: No, I really liked this interview. It was really informative and it had some, you know, input on how the market was changing in
0: Russia as well, which I thought was quite insightful. Yeah, he's a funny guy. Yeah. And then after that, in the second segment, we will talk about Brexit and you will educate me. In the spirit of being in England, we'll talk
1: about two Europeans entering England and why we're getting kicked out. But also, we're going to have it you know, included on how it affects arbitration, if it affects arbitration, affecting London as a seat, um, but also enforcement of
0: awards and um, other implications it can have. And then finally, for Happy Fun Time, it's time we talk about the defective tribunals uh, the, we're using uh, a, a blog post on Clue Arbitration blog that was circulated widely uh, a few months ago about trying to introduce this new phrase defective tribunals or defective panels to signify tribunals that are all white male basically and we are taking this on and, and addressing whether or not this is a good idea
1: Yeah, it takes an old discussion and kind of puts a new hat on it and seeing if that is a way to change the landscape of the discussion. Don't you think? Well, it remains to be seen. The beauty of doing (laughs) a podcast in the same room. I can just read your face. Um, All right, well, touche. Here we go.
0: fact in moscow
2: i am in moscow and it's minus 16
0: oh my goodness
2: um a lot of snow um you know white nice white winter so it's just fabulous it's
0: it's, we are i'm i'm in cambridge and brian is in stockholm and in cambridge it's raining and it's like nine degrees and stockholm i'm guessing as always it's like around zero and slushy so we're really and the you know the what you would expect from the locations in which we're in yeah exactly <laughs> so can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the russian arbitration association that you are uh, the the head of or the president of What what is the russian arbitration association uh thank you joel
2: yes we we don't call it president or the head we call it a, in a traditional way the secretary general yeah, and it of basically you know, resembles unlimited powers of a person who is in charge of the organization. Uh, but in fact, uh, we were established in 2013, so turning five this year, and there will be some festivities um, celebrating this occasion. We were established by about 100 lawyers and law firms interested in arbitration, interested in changing Russian legal environment, uh, with respect to arbitration and litigation and, of course, international litigation. Um, and it's a non-profit, non-for-profit organization. At the moment, we have 100 full members, most of them are international and domestic law firms, um, taking very active role in working groups and the conferencing and uh, educating students, judges, um, legal professionals, et cetera.
0: Um, what is the relationship like a, to? Sorry, what is the relationship to uh, to the state essentially to the people you want to influence? Are they involved, or are you more acting in a way that you're trying to advocate and, and educate them? And uh, it's a it's a more complicated relationship.
2: Well, we are not related to any state or any state organisation or company. It's a completely independent organisation, and we are proud of that. Our finance comes from from the membership fees. And from the earnings, from conferences and publications, so uh, we are interacting with a lot of actors in Russia, be it judges or state officials or companies or other organizations such as uh, chambers of commerce, etc., etc. So basically, it's spreading the word, educating people. Um, like uh, one of the instruments we use is Amicus Curiae, which we submit very much uh, four or five times a year. To the Supreme Court of the Russian Federation, when it comes to um, issues of arbitration, arbitrability, for instance, seat of arbitration, um, questions of uh, financial insolvency of one of the parties, and whether those agreements are um, still enforceable, etc. So we submit, we prepare uh, amicus curiae and submit it to the Supreme Court, giving an overview of foreign jurisdictions and Russian case
0: law. Interesting. I didn't actually know that was a feature in, in Russian yeah. civil procedure.
2: Uh, this is correct there is no such a feature but I, I assume the court happily uh, admits this is a as an informal um, assistance um, you know to the case uh, right. so there is such a feature in the constitutional court and you can do it legally but not with the commercial or or, or course of common jurisdiction but uh, i think they will legalize it finally because um, it's a very helpful instrument uh, we are not lobbying any anyone's interest and in fact if we have one of the members of the working group involved in the case the member steps out and you know has no knowledge of what's going on in the working group and you know what kind of discussions are going on about this case so it's uh, completely impartial and transparent
0: and can I ask you how how centered are you to moscow where you are and, and the reason we're calling you but russia is of course a, a huge country and there are any number of other big cities how much of the arbitration work that you are now talking about is, is centered in in moscow
2: russian i say I, I would say russian arbitration market is very much moscow centric we have only a few professionals a few law firms in St. petersburg for instance even less in other cities such as novosibirsk or kazan or Yekaterinburg. normally companies or clients who have cases outsource this uh, legal services um, you know, instruct Moscow law firms or um, more rare, rarely uh, firms from St. Petersburg. So it is a very Moscow-centric market. Um, most of the events which happen in in Russia happen in Moscow. Last year we had like 20 conferences, perhaps, in Moscow, and maybe one or two in St. Petersburg.
1: Is it the practice yeah, of the history. institutions to have Moscow as the default seat of arbitration?
2: The so foreign institutes. You mean um, domestic or foreign? Uh, which institutions are you referring to?
1: The domestic ones.
2: Uh, domestic. Uh, it's it's another interesting issue. Uh, before the, as you know, we we are running through the legal reform in arbitration. Uh, before the reform started in 2015, before the new law was passed in 2015, there were about uh, maybe 1,500, 1, 1. 1.5 thousand arbitral institutes across Russia. Wow. Um, some of them were sham, clearly sham, issuing um, semi-criminal awards just in support of bank proceedings or money laundering, etc. And there were clear uh, cases of like, criminal law. Some of the institutes were so-called pocket institutes under the auspices of larger corporations. As you know, Russian market is driven by large companies. Rather than medium and uh, small-sized companies, and those corporations would probably, at that time, be interested in resolving the internal disputes themselves, rather than just uh, giving them away to the state courts or other arbitral institutes. So, for that reason, like companies such as Gazprom, for instance, Berbank established their own arbitration institutes, wow. financed <laughs> them, appointed <laughs> arbitrators. But normally, you know. Uh, Initially, it was started just to resolve the intergroup group uh, disputes, like because Sberbank has um, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, um, branches or uh, subsidiaries across Russia. But at a later stage, they started to, you know, inserting arbitration clauses in the agreements with contractors and subcontractors and clients, etc., referring to their own institutes, and uh, of course, that was. Against the principle that anyone can be judged in his or her own dispute so and um, basically uh, only a handful of arbitration institutes in Russia prior to the reform were truly independent and heard normal cases as they should you know should hear uh, in arbitration uh, after the reform uh, where we are now at the moment, uh, we have four arbitral institutes which can operate play in Russia. Uh, only you, four. You remember, only four out of 1,500 prior to 2015.
1: Wow. And those are all based in Moscow.
2: Indeed, they are. They are all based in Moscow. And um, uh, referring to your question, whether uh, you know, the institutes are seated in, in Moscow or elsewhere, now they are all Moscow-centered. And in order to improve the situation, I know that some of them are reviewing, or even have started already, expansion to the regions like uh, uh, the Orbital Institute under the Russian Chamber of Commerce. They're opening branches in across the Ural Mountains, um, Siberia, south, south, southern Russia, western Russia, etc. Trying to do spread across Russia. Well, when
1: um, was your? Um the arbitration association was that involved at all in the creation of this reform did you guys file any opinions or involved in any negotiations
2: absolutely Brian now uh, the reform has, uh, w- w- was started actually in a very transparent way the Minister of Justice uh, uh, drafted the law in consultations with all interested parties they will they will different comments from from the Russian Arbitration Association, from various chambers of commerce, even companies and other associations. And I think the law was partially based on the comments received by the Ministry of Justice and the drafts from the commentators. Uh, Though we were uh, a strong opponent of uh, institutional registration whereby, you know, you need to be licensed in order to administer disputes as an institution in Russia, and exactly that part actually found its place in the new law. And that's the reason we have such a huge reduction of, in the number of institutes in Russia. Only four are existing at this point.
0: Can I ask you, Roman, something that I think is, is on the mind of many people from outside of Russia with limited experience of Russian arbitration? And that is how many international cases are handled by these now, then only four institutions? And what is the the situation for international arbitrations in Russia? Because typically Russian disputes are, you know, well known and the, the bread and butter of many international lawyers. But they tend to be involving Russian parties but uh, heard outside of Russia. So what what is the inverse situation inside Russia in, uh, in these institutions?
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Joel. The the idea of the reform was to develop Russia as a place of arbitration because if you look at the case law prior to 2015 most of the international so-called international cases uh, were heard under the rules of the Russian Chamber of Commerce, uh, so-called ICAC, I- I- a- International Commercial Arbitration Court, under the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, as far as I remember, normally they would have up to maybe 250 cases a year and only uh, Five-seven percent of which will be purely international, not involving a Russian party, meaning that 90-95 percent of the cases would probably involve uh, a, a Russian party's claimant or, or respondent in the proceeding. Um, and um, um, uh, the other portion of cases would be administered by uh, pro- prominent foreign institutes such as the ICC, as the LCIA seated in Russia. But if you look in, into this stats so of those institutes, you see that Stockholm seated, uh, sorry, SEC, Arbitration seated in Russia, uh, happened only once or twice, you know, in the 100-year history of the SEC. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, were they successful? Well, I, I don't know. One of the cases, I think, is being set aside. The other one was enforced, to my my knowledge. I'm not sure about any uh, LCIA cases, probably none, but with respect to the ICC, there were a few. And I think this illustrates the attractiveness of the jurisdiction as a seat for foreign cases. Uh, I'm not speaking about... I'm only speaking about Russia-related cases now, but I'm not speaking about non-Russia-related cases. So uh, in such circumstances, everyone understood that you should do something in order to improve Russia as Russia's seat. Um, it would be ambitious to suspect or expect that there would be purely foreign cases pouring into Russia, but uh, r- Russia could at least uh, be a seat for the uh, so called post Soviet disputes between other post Soviet countries.
0: Like and I mean, yeah, and, and technically, those disputes, I guess, are foreign in the sense that they, they potentially don't involve Russian parties, but they, of course, are, might be heard in Russian or, or have significant Russian connections. But in, uh, in the strictest possible reading uh, dispute between a, a Kazakh and an Uzbek entity, is a foreign case viewed from from Russia, I guess.
2: Exactly. Yes. And th- th- there's another feature here is that we need to change the mind mindset of some of the arbitrators here. Uh, there was one recent case, I'm not gonna tell you which institute that was. But there was a case between two Kazakhstani companies, uh, administered by a Russian arbitration institute with the seat in Moscow. And when the arbitrators looked at the uh, at the jurisdiction of the case, they decided that they have no jurisdiction because this is not a an international arbitration in the sense of Russian law, because international arbitration would involve, you know, at least one of one of the parties or so interest in a dispute would arise from a country other than you know the other party. And since they were two Kazakhstani parties and the uh, the interest was over some Kazakhstani company or or supply agreement, I I don't know, uh, the arbitrators deemed that case as purely domestic in, in the view of Kazakhstan law and denied their own jurisdiction. Uh this is insane. And I don't think you can imagine anything like that in Stockholm, or, uh, London or Paris.
0: Well, this not now. But, but I you, you, I think we discussed this previously on the podcast that in, in Sweden we had a similar court ruling in a set aside case like only 15 years ago when the court said it, it was set aside the war because the, the, the connection, there was no connection to Sweden. So I, I don't think we should overestimate the, the sophistication of some other seats when it, when it comes to this. But I, you're probably right that it wouldn't happen in, in like 2017.
2: Right. I, re- I remember the case you were mentioning, but that was about the setting aside proceedings and whether the parties can you know do the setting set, set aside thing in, in, this, in, uh, right. in right. 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 But here it was about jurisdiction of the tribunal itself. And I'm not saying about the state judges who would probably be very nationalistic in terms of protecting their jurisdiction, but I'm saying about arbitrators who are service providers those who should accommodate the you know the, the needs of the party and they 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 said that yeah well we don't have jurisdiction of the case it's not international um uh, and another thing which popped up uh, recently is uh, a dilemma uh, between uh, seat of arbitration and uh, place of hearings
0: oh interesting i'm glad you you take this and, up That's something we talked about before
2: right and it's something you've also recently discussed in the uh, titan case in uh in stockholm i guess so it's a very similar thing um uh, so there was a a case by a, a very by, by a shady sneaky i don't know what kind of institution that I was but it was called uh, russian singaporean arbitration institute and everyone it sounds
0: sounds very legit. Yes, I was learning
2: it. <laughs> everyone knows who is behind that institute, and I was one of the uh, of the individuals who uh, used to run the Shah, uh, sham uh, Arbitra- arbitration institute in Moscow before the new law was entered into force. So uh, his institute, of course, did not receive the license. So he decided, okay, well, I'll you know administer cases as a foreign institute. Uh, I'll have a seat in Singapore. He established um, a, a limited liability company in Singapore, called Russian Singaporean Arbitration Court. Um, he just posted some pictures and names uh, of uh, allegedly the board members of that institute on his website. And, you know, when people looked, looked there, there were some renowned professors from from Singapore, some judges, like former judges, et cetera, those who never consented to be on that board. Oh, wow. of that instance. The most, more, more, more importantly is, um, you know, the names did not correspond to the, uh, the the pictures, so the guy just posted random pictures and names.
1: <laughs> not even good liars. Um,
2: <laughs> right. Uh, he, he he didn't even bother, right? Um, so, um, uh, and he tried to, to bypass this uh, strict requirement of the law that you need to have a license in order to administrate disputes in Russia. So he said, okay, well, what I will do, I will, um, uh, administrative cases. Uh, well, in uh, in Singapore, the sit legally the seat will be in Singapore, but the hearings will be in Moscow because you know uh, the parties were from Moscow, the all the interests were in Moscow, etc. But we would sort of administer the the case in Singapore. And when that uh, the award was issued, a Russian court uh, realized that this isn't the sham institute and this is uh, an attempt to um, to torpedo the law, so they should do something to set aside the award because it was basically, oh, well, there was enforcement proceedings. So the court didn't find any better solution than to say that, you know, the seat was not in Singapore because uh, the case was administered from Moscow. Technically, all the emails were, were coming from Moscow, from Moscow service. Um, the arbitrators met in Moscow, the award was issued in Moscow, et cetera, et cetera. The court did not pronounce though clearly a difference between the seat and the place of hearings but if you read it in a in a you know well very strict manner or if other courts were read it in a strict manner they will see no distinction between the seat and the place of hearings and this is another uh, problem which which was created by the new law uh, uh, in order to avoid the the, the strict requirements of the law you have those sham institutes being registered here and there um, you know and here we have this seat and uh, place of hearing, hearings dilemma so in my recent arbitration I'm sitting we 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 drafted the terms of reference and one of the parties insisted on the on the uh, um, hearings in Moscow and we clearly uh, spelled it out that you know the the, the place of the seat of arbitration does not mean that this will be the place of hearings and vice versa. It should have no impact. And that would be my recommendation you know, to other arbitrators to do the same if they are planning to have uh,
0: hearings in Moscow. That's a good point. And, and that is, of course, something that is allowed by most arbitra- both, most arbitration rules and, and domestic laws as well, that you, you do that uh, distinction and split up the two. It, right. I, I, I want to ask you something on, uh, related to what you said uh, about the, the prior case with the, the Kazakhstani, uh, Kazakh, I guess is the English phrase, mm-hmm. uh, the, the parties and, and the, the Russian arbitrators in that case. What is the arbitrator community in, in Russia? I sometimes speak to people uh, from Russia when I meet them outside of Russia and get the impression that uh, there's a lot of different layers. You, you both have older arbitrators who are sort of trained in a, in a Soviet context, and then you have a lot of younger people such as yourself with maybe a, a different kind of of background in, in terms of education and experience. Is that a simplification, or is that indeed true, that you have this sort of tension within the arbitrator community? I
2: wouldn't say there is tension. Um, uh, indeed, you have uh, very prominent arbitrators, with the Soviet tradition, but still they adapted. I think they adapted quite well to the modern uh, state of affairs. Uh, very knowledgeable, well, well respected, uh, well, very very uh, diligent and nice arbitrators. Uh, at the same time, you have uh, an average arbitration practitioner, an average age of an arbitration practitioner uh, in Russia would be probably. 45 to 45, I don't know, 40 years old perhaps. They have only a few um, arbitrators who are like 50 years old perhaps. The rest are much younger. So there is a, a big difference, age difference um, between the uh, well-established arbitrators and a um, younger community.
0: It's like a gap. That
2: might be, uh, it's a big gap, yes. Um, and that might be one of the reasons why Russian companies, Rarely appoint Russian arbitrators in the cases, and I think that's something which has been discussed uh, recently in uh, various conferences um, uh, by the ICC and STC Council. But we we see a lot of Russian cases. Uh, we see like 30 cases in the S- in, in Stockholm a year. We we see 15-20 cases in the ICC one-third of caseload in uh, LCIA is Russia-related cases, but still you have only a few Russian arbitrators appointed by the party. Even um, national committees in the ICC, for instance, uh, uh, tend to appoint more Russian arbitrators than the parties themselves. Uh, and uh, the, I, I see the problem in the mindset of Russian companies as well, because there is not much trust. They know that, well, there are older generation arbitrators, but they have uh, real knowledge about younger arbitrators. They have much better knowledge of English legal market and barristers than, you know. Yeah, exactly. And
0: I mean, let's, let's be honest also. There's a, there's a good amount of non-Russian arbitrators who speak Russian who've made their careers <laughs> because of this, right. basically. You have a lot of Western arbitrators with, with uh, language skills that instead get get these appointments on behalf of, of Russian parties.
2: Precisely, yes. Uh, but a good thing about uh, this arbitration market in uh, in the post-Soviet uh, region is that Russian language is homogeneous. I mean, it's uh, you don't, you very much is the same. It's um, whether it's spoken in uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Belarus, Latvia, etc. A Russian speaker in one country would understand a Russian speaker in in another country, and that's something uh, what unites the markets. And I think this is a a, a good platform for expansion for the post-Soviet countries as well. Like, Kazakhstan lawyers could could act as arbitrators for cases involving a Russian element, the language or the law, not being a national of of Russia. Uh, Same for the Russians. Russian arbitrators could act in cases like as chair or sole arbitrator in cases involving Kazakhstani parties and Kazakhstani versus Germans where uh, where, uh, a chair cannot be a, a national one of the parties, same as one of the parties. So this market creates what uh, self-reproduces and creates a lot of cross-reference between the post-Soviet countries. And I think it could generate a lot of work for, for the internal work,
0: for the workers. Yeah, so there's a lot of potential in that fact. It's, yeah. it's rare. I guess Spanish is the only equivalent where you have a language that is spoken more or less in a similar way in across many different jurisdictions. And it should, in theory, create potential for mobility. Uh, and I, on that note, I also want to ask you, uh, based on, on, on my experience of meeting so many gifted, brilliant Russian lawyers who are not based in Russia, but are based elsewhere. What is the, the view of, of that? Because of course still Moscow is very much the center of the Russian speaking world, but it seems to me on the surface that many of the best Russian lawyers are not in Moscow, but they are in London or in Paris or, or in New York. Uh, but
2: I tend to agree with this statement. Uh, most of uh, uh, most of the proactive and uh, striving to, to, to um, you know to, to more experienced lawyers move to, to London, um, France, Switzerland, and it's basically um, I think a right move because you know, that's the the jurisdictions where they can get more practice and more experience um, to a large extent branches of the international law firms in Moscow produce work but they you know don't do they don't do that work themselves that work is uh, exported to to London stockholm paris etc and I think that that's uh, how it's been for for many years since the 90s uh, when the first international law firm came to Russia and uh, uh, there was lack of uh, uh, experienced and uh, knowledgeable workforce, legal workforce here. So most of the interesting cases would be exported outside of Russia and dealt with somewhere else. This is still the case if you have a, an English law firm with a branch office in Moscow um, getting an instruction in Moscow by a Moscow partner. There is a large chance that the case would be uh, delegated to to its London or Paris office. Just because there, is a, there are bigger teams, a seat would be probably in Paris or, or London, because there will be English law applicable, or Swiss law, I don't know, because it's English language, you know, and all that stuff. All the practical things um, drive the decision to uh, export the case from Moscow to, to, to another jurisdiction.
1: So do you see a lot of the international firm the international firm presence in moscow shrinking because of that or is there an increase or do you just see it a bit stagnant
2: things are changing actually um, so some cases remain here in russia but well I'm, I'm 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 saying that the arbitration market is expanding at this point um, there, used, there used to be less cases than uh, there are now uh, there are more cases in london than if you check the stats it's not only uh, the number of cases but also who represents the parties uh, uh the SEC counsel, Natalia Petrik, mentioned that in the 90s, most of the Russian respondents were either non represented in the arbitration proceedings or represented themselves by using the in-house lawyers. All, all that has changed uh, in 2000s, and, and, of course, now uh, companies understand that they need professional representation, they hire lawyers. So, of course, the, the arbitration market expanded. Uh, But speaking about brilliant uh, overseas community, I agree that um, they are brilliant.
0: uh, You and I met now just uh, earlier this year in London at a conference, and it was, I think, co-hosted by some sort of uh, society for Russian-speaking lawyers in London. And I can't recall the exact numbers of, of, of the membership, but I was astonished by the amount of, of Russian speaking lawyers who met on a relatively regular basis and, and you know spoke Russian and drank vodka in, in London bars, because it's such a, a huge community uh, in, in London. So that, I mean, if in theory, you would you were, you were to move all of those people to Moscow, it would be, it would be a different city altogether, I guess.
2: Uh, I agree. I agree. It's, uh, a large number of people. Of professionals are in London. Uh, a number of, uh, actually, the number of the number of Russian-speaking arbitration groups is, is huge. We have at least three or four organizations: RCAN, Russian CS Arbitration Network. We have uh, 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 Anglo-Russian Law Association, which predominantly focuses on non arbitration. You have so-called Rumka. Rumka means a shot, a shot of vodka or something.
0: Oh, yeah, that's and the one that
2: I'm stands, thinking about. <laughs> so yes, and it stands for Russian lawyers and in International Arbitration. Um, I have a number of other less visible organizations, but they, indeed, you know, they, are, they, are, they are many. They are many, and um, it's also due to the fact that London is um, 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 an important jurisdiction for, for Russian cases. Yeah. Um, they say 30% of uh, LCA caseload is Russian caseload, but it's it's not it's not um, true. I mean, um, perhaps less than that. Uh, but if you include cases from the BVI, Cyprus, Seychelles, Bermudas, and other exotic jurisdictions which have Russian element behind them, they'll probably comprise those 30% of, yeah, right. of the LCA yeah.
0: I have one final question for you, Roman, from from my end, and and it might be too specific and not something that you are are officially uh, in a position to answer, but you seem to know so many things about Moscow. And I've been thinking about this now that we've been talking as well. There was a story broken, uh, and I think it was in some mainstream media, and I can't recall which now, about the enormous amount of lawyers working for the Russian government in disputes, because, as we know, the Russian Federation is, of course, a repeat player in investment arbitrations, and they are now becoming very sophisticated compared to many other states, both in in the proceedings, but maybe also in particular in in post-award, various post-award stages relating to enforcement and, and set aside. And the content of the story, as I recall, was basically that there's a big in-house department now working solely with international arbitration at the Russian government. And yet I've never met uh, any of these lawyers, not that I'm in Russia that much, but you know, in, in the US and in Canada and in some other countries, it's very common that you see that arbitration practitioners, especially in the investment treaty world, they move back and forth between the, the foreign ministry and the law firms and there's sort of a revolving door policy. But I don't know about Russia. and. What is the, the, the view in the Russian arbitration community when it comes to working for the state and then maybe uh, going back to private practice or the other way around?
2: Well, you don't see that much mobility, to be honest. Um, I, I would In fact, I wouldn't recall any state official moving, uh, resigning from, from uh, his or her official role in moving in-house or moving to a law firm as a lobbyist or, or a lawyer or... partner developer of a practice but so there is not much mobility in that sense Uh, you may see something in the opposite direction that uh, private practitioners uh, join forces with the state or become state state officials happens now and then speaking of the department which deals with russian and russian treaty arbitration there is one uh, they are Quite transparent and visible, and in fact, one of the lawyers is a member of our RAE under forty group. Oh, really? And he's, yes, and uh, I mean, th- th- there is not much to tell. I mean, it, it should be it, probably it is like a, a routine work, hiring a lawyer and you know, coordinating work with them. So. There is not much magic going on, I guess. But in, in fact, uh, and I agree with you, the the Russian state is uh, is very pronounced in that sense because they they paying a lot of attention and investing a lot of a lot of money into protecting you know their interests in uh, treaty arbitration and also on at the enforcement stages. Uh, another interesting development which may impact the market. And the division of work between foreign law firms and domestic law firms, and arbitration is the sanctions.
1: That was my uh, last question. <laughs> <So> thank you.
2: <laughs> Sorry, the elephant I
1: in the know. room. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, is are you seeing an increase in cases because of that, or is it just right now more like consulting uh, companies?
2: There is well, first of all, there is redistribution of work. Um, international law firms sometimes cannot take um, on the assignments coming from the sanctioned companies, especially if those are American law firms or English law firms. But uh, they they simply cannot provide services to them. And even if they can provide services, then they need to be very strict uh, with respect to the invoicing because uh, you probably remember this time restriction that um some of the banks cannot be uh, um cannot uh, the borrowings cannot exceed 14 days right uh, for, for some russian banks which means that if a law firm provides services it, uh, to a bank on a sanctions list, it credits the bank with services i.e equals money so those law firms have to invoice a bank uh, much more f- Like very frequently, and the bank should pay every 14 days. 14 days the bank should, you know, pay for legal services because if you exceed that 14 day limit, you would violate the sanctions legislation. (laughs) Um, uh, So, law firms, uh, international law firms, um, sometimes uh, reject the existing clients or reject potential clients because of the sanctions restrictions, and there is a redistribution of work. More work comes to domestic law firms. You know that uh, domestic law firm firms recently hired a number of individuals from international law firms, very knowledgeable and experienced individuals, those who run arbitration practices domestically and internationally, and those are, who are not restricted uh, by by the sanctions regulations of the United States and Europe. And I think you will see more frequently uh, new law firm names on. Uh, Various international cases um, due, to this, uh, due to this problem.
1: It's a new thing you can put on your CV, right? It's like languages you speak. I'm not sanctioned. I'm not dealing with cases <laughs> on the sanctions list.
2: <laughs> Precisely, yes. Um, and there th- is th- uncertainty because the regulations are uh, formulated in a very vague uh, manner. And sometimes g- companies or law firms prefer not to deal with the client. Even, even though there is uncertainty whether there is any sanctioned element or not um i i i am, I am aware of, of a number of such cases you know even some extreme cases with other service providers such as the express you know, post we uh, like uh, notified one of the one of the opponents here in russia of arbitration proceedings um, in europe and uh, the respondent was on the sanctions list and with that express post, I was about to deliver a parcel of the documents to the to the respondent. They realized that uh, the respondent is on the sanctions list, and they rejected it. They, they send the, the parcel back to the sender because um, had they delivered that, they would technically would provide services to a sanctioned company. Wow. So they so, said, well, we're <laughs> not dealing with that, so send it back. Um, then we also had a survey among arbitrators, uh, among European and American arbitrators, whether They would still take uh, uh, a seat on the cases involving a sanctioned company or a sanctioned matter or something like that, and uh, uh, surprisingly, most of the arbitrators said we we don't see any problem with that because you know we are not providing services; we are providing justice. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and that's a hundred and eighty degrees shift now vis-a-vis what arbitrators used to say like five years ago hey we are not judges we are not providing justice we are providing services to the guy right (laughs)
0: yeah um, can i ask you now brian i know last time you were in moscow you you didn't want to leave but i i think we might have to leave are you fine with with leaving moscow for now and thanking roman or do you have any other questions no,
1: I'm finished. I, I, this was one of you know going
0: to be one of the most interesting seat discussions we have because it's it's such a vital part of the community globally. But we'll have to yeah, leave exactly. it for There for now, we have to thank Roman so much for taking the time to to talking to us and and leave it here. I think definitely. Thank you so much, Roman. Thank
1: you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: back to brexit are you ready yeah
1: okay as if we think we're qualified to talk about brexit we're gonna talk about brexit um
0: okay on that note can we just uh, minor pause here yes i think now i'm in the in the double digits when it comes to people gi- giving us blowback on the qc episode we did last season because we were wrong on so many points and we misunderstood so many things really yeah <laughs> Because I I led
1: this discussion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've actually promised a few people to come on the second season and just set us straight when it comes to to, to the Queen's Council. Yeah, exactly. And I I have notes. But that's a different story altogether. What I'm saying is, is this the the, the equivalent of the second season? (laughs) Good preface to this. No, I mean, talking about
1: Brexit as a status update itself we're just going by what we read. But I think when it as it relates to arbitration is something that we can speak on in intellectual terms. I mean it's it's talking about the UK not being a member of the EU. How does that affect enforcement? How does that affect it as London as a seat? I think True. it's basically just now making the UK
0: and London a third party vis-a-vis the EU. That's right. But then again I mean, once again, with the major caveat that we're talking about this without being based in London, and there's at least 1,000 people who are more qualified to talk about this than we are. <laughs> but but that notwithstanding, how much does the EU really have to do with arbitration? Is is that really a relevant consideration? Because the New York Convention and, and the domestic law, they're basically yeah. going to stay the same. Well, so you get to my first point,
1: which is that Enforcement is not going to be a big of a, as big of a problem because you will have the New York Convention to enforce uh, foreign awards in the UK, but also UK awards in New York Convention signatories right. and the Exit Convention for for Exit cases for Exit cases exactly that that is the first point because the thing is you know you have law firms discussing it and you have people discussing Brexit as being this like huge impactful event in the world but when you break it down that's kind of what we're we're dispelling a myth. I would say, more than educating the masses on this point. And the myth is Brexit is going to Brexit is going to affect
0: the the legal market as we know it. But the market is one thing, and the legal is another thing, right? Because so far we've only talked about legal. I mean, the market you could still talk about in different terms, which I'm not qualified to do at all. Like the UK financial market. Yeah, and by extension, the UK arbitration market. Yeah. Regardless of, of how the legal norms develop, it's still a signal that the UK is not part of of the European Union in the future. And it might signify to, I don't know, Russian investors or or American investors or people from those states with an interest in arbitration that right. the UK is now not a European state, but rather something else that is separate, separate but equal <laughs> compared <laughs> to the EU. So
1: I think you're bringing up a good point, which is basically if you look at the commercial effect of Brexit as it relates to arbitration it would be that the subject matter of the, these disputes may not come to london that's a myth right uh, in my opinion it's a myth that investors are now going to say well london's not a part of the eu now we're not going to you know invest all of our money in here and one of the, i mean one of the big industries if you look at arbitration you know industries or industries that are subject to arbitration in the uk a lot of it has to do with the financial sector so in that, but does it mean that money will, you know, having a having an arbitration based in the UK does not mean that money is flowing from abroad into the UK. It means that it's going around and then when something happens, it goes to the UK, you know, as a seat. So I don't think that even then it would have an impact on arbitration in this, you know, greater commercial context of where the disputes would come from or if people, you know, Boris in Russia is just not going to move his money over here anymore. What we did see so far is that you have a lot of the financial companies, you know, your big banks and big consulting firms moving to Frankfurt, right? Is that empirically what we have? A lot of, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of companies have been moving. I mean, I think Goldman Sachs moved like 6,000 jobs over from the UK to Frankfurt. Um, in anticipation of this Brexit. Do I think that that will have an impact on how disputes will be constructed and formulated? I don't think so. Maybe new contracts will be drafted to include new seats of arbitration, but I don't think it's going to have the, this
0: huge weight. No, I mean, that's, that's a separate discussion, really. Yeah. That has very little to do with the Brexit discussion, at least the way it stands now. Right. Now, what do you think about the advantages
1: of London as a seat of investment arbitration being affected by it being a member state or not? This is a good
0: question because this is something that I've been uh, talking about. I've been giving a few presentations now here in Cambridge and in London as part of my dissertation work. And as you know and as our listeners know, place of arbitration and the use of non-exit rules in investment treaty arbitration is sort of my, my dissertation topic. And there hasn't really been any London seated cases mm. in investment arbitration. There's been a few uncentral cases. But I can count those on one hand, basically. Right, it's like four or five cases that that have been seated in London, and sometimes you get the impression. Uh, I'm not blaming the LCIA because I know that they wouldn't outright misrepresent, but you sometimes get the impression, especially from people in London, that London is a seat for investment arbitrations, which is strictly speaking not not very accurate. So there's really nothing to lose. Exactly. Frankly put. Exactly. So that's another myth dispelled. (laughs) Insert
1: jingle here. Um, What about... So now the EC has authorized member states to open formal negotiations with third countries to amend or conclude a BIT under certain conditions. So you have the ability of the UK to the extent that it would be involved in any investor state dispute the UK would be able to enter into negotiations already as an EU member state and even after to create BITs and include um, the dispute resolution mechanisms already. I think my
0: uninformed outsider opinion or view rather than opinion is that prior to Brexit happening or the the referendum happening, the UK actually considered and maybe even started negotiating bits with third states Mm -hmm. with the Commission's approval – but since Brexit, which is a general thing, everything else just stopped, right. and, and it, it's all hands on decks to try to figure out the legal implications of Brexit. So now they haven't been very active. But that's a, that's a good point, that they were already probably allowed, or they were allowed, but they were probably already negotiating bits with, with non-EU states. Correct. With, with the commission just approving. So those would be able to survive even post-Brexit. Presumably, yeah. Presumably. Yeah. But, I mean, the big issue is, of course, the relationship between the UK and the EU member states and the treaty-based uh, investment protection in right. that scenario. Because th- that's maybe not so much in the investment context, because that's too, uh, too specific for, for many policymakers and newspapers. But in the trade context, the free trade agreement, that is, I mean, that's one of the three big things that they are negotiating, And that's a different story altogether, whether or not the UK will have investment treaties with... Against it? Yeah. Or with the EU member states uh at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that they are bilateral by nature, so they go both ways. Right. And that, I mean, I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and we're not going to answer it. And, you know, all you barristers out there that hate me. Uh, What do you think about the UK being a respondent in an investment case
0: for Brexiting? This was raised, once again, on Ogimed, I think, a few years back. I can't remember the exact facts, but there are, I mean, on the face of it, there are investors who relied on certain representations, not explicit, specific representations, but essentially they relied on a regulatory framework based on EU law when they invested in Sector X. And now maybe, we don't know, nobody knows, and that's the whole point, maybe Brexit will lead to that regulatory framework changing And then on the face of it, of course, you have a
1: case, presumably. Presumably. And so you would have an FET claim. But I mean, the question is, and this came up in the Spain cases, the ones that found that there was no liability, is that... Depending on when the investment came in, depending on when Brexit was being made aware to the public, you could even defeat any FET claim saying that you could have expected
0: that it was true. But it happened very fast. We have to remember this. If if you invested in like just five years prior to the referendum, I don't think that argument would fly because it wasn't on the map that the UK would leave Europe and like European Union. In 2011. Five years, of course not.
1: Yeah. But, you know, so in those Spain tribunals, one of them, you kind of said that, you know, even though Brexit happened, you know, five years later, that there could have been negotiations or discussions that could have affected the expectations. Or maybe you have an investment that kind of increased over time. It could kind of divide that in half on when you could say that the investors' expectations were thwarted. Mm, Right. Um, Another, I mean, you could also have commercial arbitrations using force majeure as an excuse for non-performance so brexit is an act of god, is an act of god. <laughs> <laughs> well if you're talking about it being so quick <laughs> Uh, what about... this is? Oh, and then the UK can now issue anti-suit injunctions, which I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, that's right. The
0: whole West Tanks thing goes away if they're not... But this, I have to... Now, once again, we're revealing our ignorance, but I read in, like, I think, Financial Times that the current strategy uh, on behalf of the Theresa May government is that they are essentially splitting up regulatory clusters into three different baskets... There's going to be one basket in which they intend to keep sectors aligned with EU law, mm-hmm. and then one where they will be somewhere in the middle and they will share some goals, but they won't, you know, comply necessarily. And then one where they are expressly going to say, "Screw EU law. This is now completely UK." I don't really know where arbitration falls into this this division, if yeah, because it would make sense that they would still say that even though we're formally not bound by the ECJ case law and 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 so on and so forth, because arbitration is such a global sector and we are such a major player in that sector, we are gonna stick with the case law as it is anyway, because it, it's just easier for everyone. I don't know. I'm right. guessing arbitration is not even among the first five hundred topics no. on the on the list. So they probably haven't even discussed it. But that would be interesting to know, because anti suit injunctions is is one of those things where there's this strong sense in the British legal community that the EU law has sort of taken away something out of the toolbox that is typically a common law UK thing that they want to stick to.
1: Yeah. And uh, I don't even know how often that comes up. Like, you know, the US has it as well, but I don't even know how often that comes up or how that's enforced or anything like that. But I think it is an interesting thing to think about. I mean, I I've heard another I've read another thing about how, you know, the they're gonna have a hard Brexit in the in the event they have a hard Brexit that they'll just freeze the laws as they are until they have some sort of and that would kind of be the transition climate until they come up with what's gonna happen. So it's another another Feather to put in the hat of what people can expect to happen in the arbitration context and in the investment context. I mean, I don't think anything's going to change really much in the
0: near future. When it comes to sectors and the communities um, making up sectors, I think lawyers are the most status quo prone and conservative right. people you can find maybe not necessarily the same in you know the pharmaceutical sector or or <laughs> the, the high-tech sectors but but it, they're sort of find i think sort of find a community of people who are more like trying to stay away from change more than many lawyers definitely stability is just what you're looking for so i mean There's already some sort of institutional bias to try to keep things as they are for as long (laughs) as possible.
1: (laughs) That's true. I mean, the cases are going to come no matter what. I mean, I don't think that's going to change. Cases will come. It depends on where they go. And as we said, I don't think London's going to change as a seat.
0: Um, Probably not. And I mean, this this one thing that ties into our general discussion this season of the podcast is that I've already heard a bunch of people within the London community using Brexit as an argument for why you should choose London as a place of arbitration already turning it into a good thing basically why? yeah because K- now we will be you know we will be decoupled from the ECJs um. uh, Arbitration unfriendly jurisprudence, (laughs) and because we are already such a a, a pro-arbitration community, now we can roam free without the restrictions of of Brussels case law, which doesn't understand arbitration. So we will be safe. That is such a levers (laughs) argument.
1: Let us be free. We're going to be so much better.
0: It's like oh god. Yeah, but that's the that's the whole underlying yeah. sentiment of Brexit so yeah. I think it runs here as well and I think from, from my horizon it also goes to uh, to prove the, the, the point we made in the first episode of this season that you can turn basically whatever you want into something that you can brand pro-arbitration and then sell it to the <laughs> users <laughs> yeah definitely um, I'm
1: ex- you know there's all these talks that are coming out in Brexit I don't think any of them there's like there's six talks coming out we've seen two You mean between the EU and... No, uh, the parliament, the British parliament is coming out with a six-segment speech series. Oh, no idea. That was all S's. Um, (laughs) And they had... Theresa May was one of them, and now they had had Boris Johnson, who's the foreign secretary. Theresa May's going to talk again, and then they have three other individuals that are members of the cabinet that are going to be talking. And none of them is about <laughs> dispute resolution. It's about like surprise, anti-terrorism surprise. and stuff oh, yeah. like that. And the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. But none of it has to do with,
0: with what we're talking about. I wonder who is formally in charge of that. Where it falls on the government. Do you, do you remember I sent you this I think either on Facebook or Twitter the, the name of the ministry that is in charge. It's like an incredibly Orwellian name. I mean. <laughs> It's the Brexit ministry about... Arbit- like. No, dis- it's not arbitration specifically. It's the people dealing with all the legal aspects of Brexit. Here. Okay, it wasn't... Oh, it was just the acronym. What is it? It's the Department for Exiting the European Union. And they have the acronym DEXEU. Oh, so DEXEU. DEC. So. Oh, yeah, okay, it well, wasn't very good. Let's, let's cut this. <laughs> no, I'm going to put it in. Just to, <laughs> uh, oh, the anti-climactic experience of Googling for five minutes <laughs> and coming up with nothing. So are
1: you, like, sufficiently pleased with Brexit, Brexiting?
0: Yes, I am. And I have to say, after having been here for a few months, that it's not a big thing as I thought it would be people aren't talking about it as much and I'm still at the center for international law (laughs) yeah I thought it would be it's not like the US election no but I think it's similar to like all the Trump stuff that most people are just bored at this point just leave leave me alone and let me go on with my life well that I mean and no one knows what's
1: happening that's true government included yeah
0: true true what are you going to talk about (laughs) (laughs) all right uh, should we move on to happy fun time and open our second beers because we've already had yes one each. Let's go. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> okay, so let me tell you, Brian and our listeners. Let me first take a snooze. <laughs> Start over. Yeah? And now I'm going to tell you and our listeners that we are a defective podcast. Yeah. What? Eh? Ah, yeah, maybe. At least for this episode. Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Let's put a pin in that and return to I, that. Uh, yeah. Let me first set this up so it makes sense for, for people who don't read Kluber Arbitration Blog each day. <laughs> On January 14th, 2018, Gary L. Benton from the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center. Put a pin in that. <laughs> That's a thing. That is a thing. Apparently. A thing I want to explore. Wrote a blog post and the title was Let's Stop Talking About the Arbitrator Diversity Problem. Gasp. <laughs> really, it should be it should have been an exclamation point. Yeah. And instead, he suggested we started talking about the solution. And part of the solution for the arbitrator diversity problem was that we should start calling, when we talk about arbitrator arbitrators and, and tribunals, uh, tribunals that do not have at least one female or other minority arbitrator should be defective. And that's exactly. the phrase we should be using. And... I, when I first read it, this is an American thing, I think, he consistently uses panel instead of tribunal, which I, uh, I very strongly tell my students when they're new to arbitration not to do, because <laughs> it's confusing. Yeah. So I read it as panel, and first I thought he meant panels on conferences. But now on my second reading, I realized that he's only talking about tribunals. tribunals, but he calls them panels. But I think we can extend the principle to, to conference panels as sure. well. So, if if you have a panel or an arbitral tribunal that consists only of three or more white men, that panel or tribunal is defective, and we should just casually refer to it that way. That's the proposition that Gary L. Benton comes with, which is, of course, super controversial. Yes. Which he also recognizes in the text. But still, I think, useful,
1: no? No. Use, yeah, I mean, he's proposing a solution, and he even calls out the other solutions that have been put forth, i.e. the pledge of the SEC, um, saying that that is not... Not the SEC. No, not the SEC. No, it's the pledge. It's, a, it's just the pledge. Yeah. Okay, but well, we SEC talked is. to
0: Annette Magnuson about the pledge. That's right, that's right. And and I think she mentioned something that I had have thought about since she mentioned it, and, and, and I probably already had it at the back of my mind which is that since probably Me Too and hopefully a little bit before this fall and the development of this fall, people in general and in our business as well are taking note of these things. When I started studying and being interested in arbitration seven, eight years ago, I didn't think about the the composition of tribunals or even panels, to be fair. It's a bit embarrassing now, but I didn't. No, I didn't either. At all. But now, as Annette mentioned, she and she uh, she was at a conference. I don't think she told us what conference it was, or I don't remember at least, where uh, one or maybe two panels had only male members, and that was like a talk in the breaks. People thought it was a little bit embarrassing. Right. And I think about that all the time now, and I think most people do. Even the more like conservative people in the business now realize that that simply just looks 100 years old. Definitely. More or less. And I think of it every time I see ICSID uh, tribunals, which is the most obvious example because those are published, those are circulated. Every time a new tribunal is constituted or an ad hoc committee, I see and I recognize and I think about it every time it's an all-male
1: yeah. panel. And then they and then they tribunal. flag Brigitte Stern and they're like, well, what about Brigitte Stern? And that's like saying, I have a black friend.
0: <laughs> it's like, you're not diverse. Yeah, that's true. She is, though, with quite some margin, the most appointed arbitrator. Yes. She's been in like 96 known treaty-based cases, which is like, I don't know, 15% of all the cases that and we know about. I applaud her, but that does not make that does not solve the problem. No, And once again, here, this this we'll have to return to, because this is something that I, I got some new intel on, and it hasn't been confirmed uh, in, in the scientific way, but there is research now that hasn't been published yet, so we'll be, we'll be returning to this suggesting that, in fact, institutions are not that much better than parties are when it comes to diversity, which is, of course, contrary to what we've learned and, I think, contrary to most of the stats that we get out of the institutions because that should be mentioned, again, that ICSID annulment committees, I think, seem to be more diverse than ICSID tribunals because ICSID gets to appoint the annulment committees and they do a much more active job For obvious reasons, because they don't have the financial stake in who they appoint in the same way that that parties do. So it's a little bit better when institutions do it. But the thing we put a pin in when you uh, mentioned your religious, ethnical (laughs) background is that it's not really defined in this uh, relatively short article. What the other minorities are, right. and where to draw the line? Because we talked about this a little bit with Annette as well. That the major battleground right now, because our business is very conservative, is to get more women. Because that just it's it's such an obvious discrepancy. So we have to address that head on. Right. But there are of course other minorities, and that's typically the way the rest of society has moved on in talking about diversity. It's not just gender based anymore. It is. I mean, in firms, firms talking about diversity, it's just
1: women becoming partners. It has nothing to do with. You know, race, gender,
0: sexual orientation. Disabilities. Disabilities. So many different categories. And I don't really know where to draw the line because, well, I mean, in this case, it would be enough to have one woman on to not be called defective. Right. Is that really sufficient? It's a good first step, but I'm not sure it it does the trick.
1: (laughs) no then you just <laughs> they're just going to have someone else you know they just appoint
0: some random person just to avoid the the defective title yeah i i've i've heard this from at least two female colleagues that they they know not on tribunals because they are not senior enough but on conference panels that they are the designated woman very often and they often get like a last minute call because it's obvious that one woman canceled and they (laughs) need to find another woman (laughs) ASAP to replace that woman because they are aware that it would look bad if they had an all-male conference panel so which I don't like I mean I,
1: I don't like that at all it's like bring in another woman replace her you know because that's that's the problem here and i don't i mean the thing that this article does a good job is that it raises the immediate questions that everyone has in their mind which is comp, you know competence not the fact that women are competent as a gender but that we only appoint white males because these are the people that are competent in the specific subject matter to be able to decide on this case and i don't think that's relevant either and what that's what the article says is that it's not relevant because there are in fact women in every subject matter, uh, you know,
0: across the board that are competent enough to speak on it. Um, There are various problems with this article, but but I still think that I will start using this from time to time in teaching, maybe especially to to influence uh, the the agile minds of, of young people entering the field and casually from time to time refer to tribunals as defective.
1: I think what happens, like, and this this happens in any you know civil rights action, is that you need to make a concerted effort in the beginning, and then it's just going to go away. Not the not the need, but there will be no def- defective tribunals or panels because there's already so many people that are part of these minority groups that are repeatedly appointed, and therefore you don't need to search for the other woman because
0: there are so many now women involved in, in the group. I know there are, like, uh, uh, gay groups in in the field of arbitration, but still, and I guess geographical diversity to a certain extent is also discussed, and it's part, I think, of the mandate that ICSID has that they have to appoint with that in mind, and in practice I think most institutions do that as well, if they can, but I think that's that's about it,
1: it's. I mean, even even you just saying, it it it's not even that binary, or it can't be that binary, because if you even have a tribunal member who doesn't is non-binary, who wants to be called they in their pronoun, is that is that making the tribunal non-defective? Or if you have someone who was raised culturally Muslim on the panel, does that make it not defective, or do they need to be? visibly Muslim. Like what what is what is the criteria in this? It's a slippery slope when we start to put people in boxes <laughs> and appoint and accordingly. Yeah. Of course. I think it's I think it's a very difficult and touchy issue. And what what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to eradicate the white man or are we trying to promote women or are we trying to just make arbitration more colorful across the board? And I think that final one is what we're trying to do, is to make it, to make it more colorful, quote-unquote colorful across the board, not, you know, not just making it a race issue, but also
0: yeah. know, gender. I mean, the, you could, of course, make the contrary argument as well, that arbitration doesn't have to reflect society as a whole because arbitration is there because parties put it in place. Right. And parties pay for it, and parties, as, as, a, as a consequence of that, they get to appoint whomever they wish. And it, it shouldn't be an issue of, the, it's not on the parties to change the nature of arbitration, basically. But I think, similar to the Me Too discussion we had last season, I think step one, just frankly, is, is putting the conversation on the table. That's right. that's where we have to start. And then where that conversation ultimately leads us is a different story. But just talking about it is an improvement over two years ago.
1: Right. And I think it's interesting what you said in the beginning that you said it's embarrassing that we didn't realize this before. And I think the issue is, and this has come, and this comes up in a lot of, you know, gender discrimination and racial discrimination issues, is that you, if you identify with the person visibly, you say, okay, you're a white man, I'm a white man, it doesn't resonate. But if you're sitting there as, you know, a black female in front of a tribunal of all white men, there is some sort of inherent bias that's happening or inherent discrimination that's happening that it only it requires you as a minority to be able to realize this that you're the only one in the room that looks different or feels different yeah right um and so for us that may not have been something that you know triggered immediately um but now we are woke joel I refuse
0: to be woke. <laughs> Joel's tired all the time. Oh, I'm comfortable in my white male privilege situation. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> no, okay, but let's agree that we should all talk about this more and then we'll revisit it and see what happens. And
1: let's have our listeners be the champions of this issue and have, you know, I, I want our listenership to embody a certain mindset. As well. And so I think, you know, we have brought it up a couple of times in the podcast, and I think we've done a great job getting speakers from different backgrounds and nationalities and genders ourselves. Have we though?
0: Genders? Yeah, exactly. We have. My point, exactly. Still haven't even had a person of color on the podcast, right? Let's be better, Brian. Amen. I pledge. I pledge. With that, I think we will close off this episode of the Arbitration Station because we want to go to. The Eagle, I think, classic pub in in Cambridge, maybe too much of a touristy trap. We'll see where we end up. I like being trapped. Yeah. (laughs) But follow us on at the ARP station,
1: contact us at the arbitrationstation at gmail.com.
0: Do that and we will speak to you next Tuesday.